Well, good morning. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor. I want to welcome you all. We're continuing in our sermon series, Follow. So hopefully you've opened up the Bibles uh, to Luke 5. If you haven't, you, you want to. You really do. You want to. You want to follow along and you want to keep your thumb in there until the very end of the sermon because I'm going to keep going back to Luke 5 again and again. And uh, so it'll help. It'll help if, you, if you're there. Um, humans don't like to be helpless. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, it's one of those things we do not like to think about. We don't want to think of ourselves in a place of helplessness. We go through life really trying to convince ourselves that we are not helpless, that we are the master of our fate. And then life does some things that kind of pulls back the curtain every once in a while and reveals to us that we are actually not in control. Uh, the coronavirus is one of those things that I think for the entire globe is like pulling back the curtain and it's this moment where we see that we lack control uh, and we want control. And so the, the sort of the symbol of sort of control over the coronavirus has, has been uh, the mask, right? Is this little effort to make sure that we don't get sick. Uh, in every picture that you see online, everything that's posted, uh, you see this mask. And it's interesting because you see headlines on these articles saying things like, masks can't stop the coronavirus in the U.S., but hysteria has led to bulk buying price gouging and serious fear for the future. Uh, in that very article from CNN, you have a CDC quote uh, saying this, we need to make those N95 masks, those are kind of souped up surgical masks are available for the doctors and nurses that are going to be taking care of individuals that have this illness. But even though we might think that some of the things that we're doing to get control aren't really going to work, we, we still grasp at control. We want to feel like we're in control. And here's one of the ironic things about following Jesus, that, that the doorway into following Jesus is actually admitting that we're helpless. That's incredibly counterintuitive to us. But it is the doorway in. We've been saying that, that Jesus, he doesn't just want a following, right? He wants followers. He doesn't just want people that are interested and curious about him, but willing to follow him no matter what. So we've been sharing this as kind of our theme verse for the series, Luke 9, 23. He, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The gospel writer Luke is building up evidence, showing us the certainty of our beliefs and who Jesus is and what he can do. He, he's told us stories about angelic uh, announcements of Jesus' conception and Jesus' birth. He, he gives us a, a report of John the Baptist, a very famous local prophet at the time, who was giving Jesus the seal of approval. He tells us of a showdown with Satan where the score was uh, Satan zero and Jesus three. Uh, he, he shows us uh, Jesus getting in on the action to tell us who he is uh, in Luke chapter 4, where he reads an Isaiah prophecy about the coming Messiah, where Jesus says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And last week, we, we saw Jesus having power over nature in the miraculous catch 
that was a way to reveal to Peter that he indeed was the divine savior king. And in today's story, Luke reveals further evidence of who Jesus is, what he can do, but also the helplessness of humans and how bad they need this Jesus. Right? So that's where the sermon's going. Who Jesus is, what he can do, and the helplessness that we have in, in our need for him. So check this out, Luke 5, 17, long in your, in your Bibles there. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So Jesus getting famous. He's getting a following. Last week, we saw how the shoreline was so packed with people that wanted to hear his teaching that he got in a boat in the water so he could address everyone that was there. A few verses before the ones I just read, 515, says, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and the great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Now in this text, we see that the religious leaders are showing up. They want to know. This guy's this famous among the mob. We, want, we need to check him out. We need to vet him to see if he is a legitimate teacher. But not only is Jesus teaching, Jesus is healing. Luke mentions this power to heal multiple times in his gospel. He'll mention it again in Luke 6 where he describes more crowds. Luke 6, 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, so now we're outside of uh, uh, Jewish region, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. It's as if his description is that power is oozing out of Jesus. The people are just crowding in, pressing in on him, just, just trying to get it, it, close enough proximity that maybe some of that power could reach out and touch them. I, I think we, we, we don't really understand how desperate people in the first century were to get medical care, right? I mean, there was no medical care in the first century. There were no x-rays. There were no antibiotics. There was no anesthesia. There were no surgeries. There was no transplants. These things didn't exist. And maybe they, they, could, they could go to uh, someone to give them an herb that would maybe help, maybe not. But they have very little medical care. And so they were desperate. If they were sick or crippled, whatever that might be, they, they were desperate for help. And so this is why they're all showing up and trying to get a cure from Jesus. I got a little, I got a little taste of this. Once when I was on a, a mission trip to Mexico, I was in a very rural area. There was no running water. There was no electricity. And I was a youth pastor, young, young guy in the faith, and uh, showed up there with a bunch of teenagers with a missionary there, and we were working. And uh, the missionary comes over to me and says, hey, a woman a village over is sick. And she, wants, she heard that there's a pastor in town, and she wants you to come pray for her. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And so I get there, and she's, she's got a fever. She's not feeling well at all. And I'm thinking, she needs a doctor. <laughs> she doesn't need a pastor. <laughs> but she didn't have a doctor. There was no doctor. And, and so she was reaching out to someone who could, who could pray uh, for her. 
Um, you know, if the coronavirus was moving through first century Palestine, uh, they would immediately have been thinking about it in spiritual terms, right? They wouldn't be thinking about what kind of a vaccine could we come up with? What kind of a medical care could we, could we come up with? They, they, would have been think, they would have been going vertical, right? And thinking, thinking about what, what could God do to intervene in this situation? And they're not wrong, right? They're not, they're not wrong to go vertical. And this is why we, we start to, to, to get super fearful is because we stay in the horizontal, right? And we just think about medical care or lack of medical care or lack of vaccines, and we start to, to worry because we, we don't go vertical. We don't go to the one who's sovereign over all things. Now, that doesn't mean we don't believe that God uses medical care and vaccines as a means. Absolutely, he does. But we believe in a God who is sovereign over all things. He is in control of all things. And so for folks to go to Jesus when they have a medical issue, it makes perfect sense in the first century. We see this utter helplessness of someone who is sick in this paralyzed man in our story. Luke 5. Behold, some men, verse 18, were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, you've got to love these friends, family. We don't know who they are. Uh, but they have carried this full-grown, paralyzed man from one place to another place. They get there. There's such a great crowd around the house where Jesus is teaching that they can't get their, their friend to Jesus. And so I don't, we don't know who gets the idea, but, but one of them is like, let's go through the roof. And then they drag this friend up on the roof. And then they start chipping away at the roof, chipping a hole in the roof, right? And then you've got whatever's going on inside the house. So Jesus is in there teaching a sermon, talking to people, and then all of a sudden the roof's caving in, right? And everybody's looking in. It's like a little hole in the roof, and then it's a bigger hole, and it's a bigger hole, and then all of a sudden there's a man coming through the hole, right? Absolute chaos. And this had to have taken some time. And so slowly they, they, they get the roof open, they get the man down, they bring him down right in front of Jesus. And so all eyes are on Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? And what does he do? What's, what does he say? Verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. What? <laughs> I mean, just, just imagine this. this. This is like not what they're asking for, obviously. This guy needs new legs. He, he didn't show up asking for sins or well, some kind of religious mumbo-jumbo, right? Like, like, we want legs. You can see the, the friends, you know, looking down in the hole like, what? We just dragged our friend all this way up on the roof, busted the roof out, dropped him down so that you could just say this religious stuff? Your sins are forgiven? This is not what anyone is expecting. Now, there's an interesting, interesting comment. He, uh, he includes the friends, right? He says, because of y'all's faith, right? It's plural. And I, we don't know exactly what, 
what that means? Does that mean that the, the friends had the faith and the man didn't? It's possible. It's possible that they had trust and belief in Jesus and the man didn't. And he, he, they were like, you're paralyzed. You can't do anything about it anyway. I'm going to take you to Jesus. Right? Or it may be that all of them, both the man on the, on, the, on the bed and also the friends, they all had heard about Jesus and they had belief. They had faith. And he says, because of all y'all's faith, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. But again, this is not what they came for. They came for new legs. We want new legs, Jesus. We, we, we weren't really coming for some kind of a forgiveness of sins. And then the story shifts. This is like a dramatic shift to those religious leaders that are in the room. Look at verse 21. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the religious leaders are there checking Jesus out. He says to this man, your sins are forgiven. They're checking their Bible dictionary, and they're like, nope, only God can do that. And they say in their minds, he's speaking blasphemies. Now, blasphemy is a technical term, and it comes from the Greek word blasphemia, right? It's like where we get the word. <laughs> we wouldn't have a word blasphemy if it wasn't for this Greek word, Okay. And, and so it is a technical religious term describing a reverent speech about God that is worthy of punishment. And sometimes death, right? And that's definitely what these guys are thinking, right? Is, is that Jesus is speaking blasphemy and he is worthy of death. So we've got a crazy shift in the narrative. We go from a paralyzed man who needs help to a theological debate. But never fear. Jesus is setting a hook. Now, usually, the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. Jesus is trapping religious leaders right now. You ever, I don't know, you done any fishing? You, you, you know what setting the hook means? You throw out the bait, and you're just bringing it in ever so gently, and the fish is thinking, that looks like lunch. And the fish nibbles on it, and then you pull and you set the hook. And this is a little bit what Jesus is doing. He throws out the bait and says, your sins are forgiven, kind of nonchalant. And he's just like waiting, right? And he knows what they're thinking, and it even says, verse 22, Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? So, Jesus asks a rhetorical question, what's is easier? Sins are forgiven and rise and walk. Now, on the surface, it looks like it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It feels a little bit like a prosperity preacher who's just declaring over the crowd, your sins are forgiven, or you get a new Land Rover, right? It's just like this blessing, blessing to you, right? And then take up an offering, you know? And, and it feels a little bit like that. Like, like he's just like saying stuff to people. And that it seems kind of easy for him to say that. But then he says this, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, 
This is a big reveal in the Gospel of Luke. He drops this name, Son of Man, and it has a, a whole lot of meaning. The Son of Man term was an Old Testament term, and it, you can go to places like Daniel 7, other places in the Bible, that's used for the Messiah, the Messianic King who's going to come and save Israel. This is the first time this term is used in the Gospel of Luke, and it's Jesus who's attributing it to himself. Luke will then use it 24 more times in his gospel. So it's an important term. And so Jesus is saying, so that you know that I'm the Messiah, I'm going to tell this guy right here to get up, take up his mat, and walk. Now, he has to set up a situation like this to reveal himself as Messiah, because if he just walks around and goes, hey guys, I'm the Messiah, and I'm God, they try to throw him off a cliff. Remember last couple weeks ago, we looked at Luke 4. Austin Kopak preached this, where he reads a prophecy in the Old Testament book of Isaiah about the Messiah, and then he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like, he's like, it's me. And their response, verse 28 of chapter 4, they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So that's the kind of response he gets when he's more forthright and says, hey, look, I'm the Messiah and I'm God. They try to kill him. Eventually they will, okay? But he, he's not ready to, 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 to do that, not, not quite yet. And so he, he, he's there eyeball to eyeball with these religious leaders and he's, he's purposely coupling this miracle with his identity, which is always his ultimate purpose for a miracle. His ultimate purpose is always to authenticate his identity. Now, there's secondary purposes, absolutely. His compassion on the people who are suffering and him intervening in that suffering, absolutely. But what is ultimate is always his identity, and he's revealing that. So, again, he just said words, you know, get up and walk. I mean, is that got any power in it? Well, evidently, yes. Verse 25, immediately he rose up before them, he picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we've, been, we've seen extraordinary things today. He gets up. <laughs> he gets up. Such a beautiful moment where Jesus is toe-to-toe with these grumbling old religious leaders. And he's like, How, you, want, you need some proof that I'm the son of man? Watch this. Get up and walk. And the man walks. But not only that. He's saying that this miracle is proof that he can forgive sins. This is what, again, every miracle points to. Not only who Jesus is, but every miracle points to what is Jesus going to do. Because the root, the root, hear this, the root of all disease, of all demonic activity, the root of all death is sin. Disease and, 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 and demonic influence and death are all effects of sin. And when Jesus in real time in, 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 this, in the scriptures and in 2020, when he does that, what he's showing is not just oh, you have a, a need in this world and I want to meet it, but I want to show you that I have power over sin. 
And so he does this miracle to reveal what, who he is and what he can do. Now, how can he deal with sin? The only way you can deal with sin is through forgiveness. And it's interesting, sin is mentioned four times, forgiveness is mentioned four times in this passage. It, it seems like Luke wants us to see sin, it's a real problem, it's something that needs to be dealt with, and Jesus has dealt with it, and he can forgive sin. Now, what is forgiveness? Uh, forgiveness is a monetary term. We talk about forgiving a debt. This has been talked a lot about in the, in the presidential debates, right? We're going to have college loan forgiveness. We've been hearing that forgiveness word quite a bit. And, and so we have this college loan forgiveness. So $1.5 trillion of college loan in the United States of America. I mean, it's like the GDP of Mexico, okay? That's, that's college debt. And, and so this idea of it's forgiven. Your college loans are forgiven. And that would be amazing, right? And, and, and it, would, it would take a load off. But what about an infinite debt? Because that's what we owe a holy God, an infinite God. See, here's what happens. You sin against an infinite God, you owe an infinite debt. You're not going to be able to pay that off by picking up a couple extra jobs. You can't pay that off by trying really hard to be good. You can't pay that off by going to church every week, reading your Bible and praying. You cannot pay it off. It's infinite, which is why someone else has to pay it off. Right? And so when Jesus is saying that this debt is forgiven... It has to be forgiven at the cost of something else. Now, this is kind of the, the argument against the college loan forgiveness, right? It's like, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay $1.5 trillion to pay that off? The same is true in the spiritual realm. If, if, if debt is going to be forgiven because, from sin, it's got to be paid for. And the religious leaders, they know that. They're, they're not all wrong in the way that they're thinking, and uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22, does a good summary of the whole Old Testament. He says, indeed, under the law, so that's Old Testament, right? Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he's, he's saying, if, if, if the wages of sin is death, there's no way to forgive that infinite payment that needs to be made unless something else dies in the place of that sinner. Humans will die in their sin unless there's a substitute that dies in their place. And the religious leaders, they understand that. They know that he can't just say, your, your debts are forgiven. They know a cost has to be made. But what they don't realize is that Jesus is going to make that payment at the cross. He is going to pay for that sin so that that debt can be forgiven. The writer of Hebrews sums it up well in Hebrews 9, 26, second part of that verse, but as it is, he has appeared, he, Jesus, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus can pay the debt that sinners owe by dying on the cross for our sin. And when he does that, he deals with the root of disease, of demonic Oppression of death itself. These miracles are little movie trailers of the life to come where the entire curse is going to be completely reversed. All of the effects of sin will be remedied 
because of what Christ does on the cross. So how do we respond to this? Well, number one, we admit our helplessness. We put down the mask. The the mask of trying to escape the debt of our sin, of trying to medicate the debt of our sin, of trying to justify, to mitigate. We take, we take, take the mask off. We admit that we have no way of paying that debt. That like the paralyzed man, we can't even drag ourselves to Jesus. Jesus actually even has to come to us. That's probably what you see as, as Jesus becomes a human being. He has to come down to us because we can't even drag ourselves because we're so crippled by sin. And Jesus meets us in that need with an unimaginable miracle. And that is the forgiveness of sin. This is the greatest miracle imaginable because he's dealing with the root of all these other things that causes so much pain and heartache. We receive this news, this good news of what Jesus has done for us. We receive that by faith. We trust in it. We believe in it. And we believe in it as our only cure, our only hope. So hear these words from Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Think of, think of that moment. Jesus is looking in the eyes of that man saying, you, your sins are forgiven. And so Christian, I, I want you to hear that. Your sins are forgiven. You who are angry and bitter, your sins are forgiven. You who are lustful, your sins are forgiven. You who are lazy and apathetic, your sins are forgiven. You who lack love for other people, your sins are forgiven. You who are greedy, your sins are forgiven. You who have trusted in yourself over and even against Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. And then once healed from the sin sickness, Jesus says to you, get up and walk. He's already discipling this man. Pick the mat up. Take responsibility for, for your life now. You, you have a whole different perspective, a whole different life, and it's all by my grace. Now think about this. This man, he gets up and walks. Now do you think he's walking out going, look how strong my legs are. I am so strong. No, he's saying, you know where I got those legs? I got those legs from Jesus. Those legs are by grace. And he takes one step and he goes, did you see that? Jesus gave me that step. He takes another step. Did you see that? Jesus gave me that step too. Did you see that? This is amazing, right? This is you, Christian. You're saved by the grace that was given to you at the cross. You are sustained by the grace that is given to you at the cross. This is what it means to walk with Jesus. This is what it means to follow Him. And when you know you've been sin sick and that He saved you, what other option do you have except to follow Him? I mean, just think if after He walks out of that that room and Jesus says, hey, could you use those legs to follow me? I'm going somewhere. Would you like to? Can you imagine Him saying, nah, I want to walk somewhere else. Thanks for the legs. No, of course not. 
Again, this is why I say that the doorway in to being a follower is realizing how helpless you are and how much you need Jesus to save you. And when you realize that, you follow him. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. This is the expectation that Jesus has. Uh, There's there's no doubt that Luke had this in mind as he moved to this next story, Luke 5.27, where Jesus is calling sinners to follow him. Luke 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Does that sound familiar? So he goes to Levi, who's a tax collector. He's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. He's hated by his countrymen because he's sold out to the Romans. He's exploiting his own countrymen, getting taxed from them to skim off the top and give to the Romans who are hated. And Jesus goes to him, even in going to him, going toward him. He's giving him mercy. He's giving him grace. And when he says, get up, take up your mat, so to speak, and walk, he gets up and he follows Jesus. After Levi experiences that, he invites all his sinner friends over for dinner. Verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees, there they are again, and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see what he's doing there? He's coupling this idea of sickness with the need for spiritual healing. Right? And he, he, he's, he's using that, that, that physical malady as an illustration to show that everyone is in need of healing from sin. And he's saying, the sin, those that know that they are sin sick, they know they need a doctor. And this is why he's, he's hanging out with the sinners. This is why he's not hanging out with the religious people. Now, there's some of you in the room, you don't think you're sin sick. Oh, you, you believe in God? You might even have some theological things about Jesus that, that you know. But, but you believe that you are sufficient in and of yourself. That you, you're not sin sick and desperate for Jesus to save you. This whole bloody cross stuff, like, uh, not sure I need that. Like, I like the God thing, but I'm not into the, I'm telling you, the bloody cross is the only cure. There is no other cure for the sin-sick sinner. And so receive that. Take off the mask of religiosity. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that religion can become a mask that we're, we're trying to use to save ourselves. It doesn't save. Jesus saves. You need the doctor. You're sick. And admitting that to him, he is more than willing to rescue you. This, again, idea of helplessness is the doorway in to following Jesus. You know, every time we come to this table, we're admitting that we're sin sick and we need Dr. Jesus. 
What should have happened in that room that day when Jesus was healing that paralyzed man and he said, your sins are forgiven, is that other people in the room should have said, me too. Could you forgive my sins too? I mean, I may have legs that work, but I have sin and I can't do anything about it. Could you, could you save me from my sin too? That's what, that's what should have happened. And that is what happened at Levi's house. Levi knew he was sin sick, and he knew he needed the salvation that Dr. Jesus was providing, and he invited all of his friends, and all of his friends were saying, me too, I'm sin sick too, just like Levi got a cure, I want a cure too, could you give me a cure, right? That's what we're saying at this table. This is Levi's house. Oh, I'm sure there's a few grumbling religious leaders in the room, but I'm trying to get you to repent and come out of that. Come on over to Levi's house. Right? We remember Jesus on the night on which he was betrayed. The night before his death, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this, this is what's going to happen to my body tomorrow on the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After he blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. And for many. Why, Jesus? For the forgiveness of sin. So your infinite debt could be paid for and you could be forgiven. That, that's why. And so we're reminded of the cure every time. Now this bread and this cup, this is not the cure. It's pointing to the cure. The death of Jesus on the cross who died in our place so that the sin sick could be healed. So we could be forgiven. So welcome to Levi's house. Every time we come up here, that's what we're saying. Me too. I'm a sinner too. I need the Dr. Jesus. I need what he did for me on the cross. Even the way that you come up and you, you hold your hand out and you let the person who's giving the communion put the wafer in your hand. It also keeps your germy hand out of the bread, okay? So that's part of it. But it also is a way to reenact helplessness. And to receive this, yet again, by faith. And it's not like you're getting saved every week. If you're a Christian, you, once for all, you put that faith in Christ and he has saved you, but you are being sustained by that same grace. That's also what you're depicting. You need grace for every step. There's not one step that you take in following Jesus that, that's not by his grace and his grace alone. And so this is what you're, this is what you're saying. And you're in good company because we're, we're in Levi's house tonight, today, right? We are sinners, and we are sick, and we need Dr. Jesus. So if you have never received that truth, that good news by faith, I encourage you to do it today, to reach out to God in prayer, even in this moment, and ask Dr. Jesus to forgive you and to give you new life. He, he, that's why he died on the cross. He wants to do that. And so if you've done that, even in the last minute, we encourage you to come and dine at Levi's house. A bunch of sinners saved by grace who are proclaiming that every Sunday in the word and also in the taking of bread and cup. If you have not yet gotten to a place where you believe that the Bible is saying what, what it's saying about Jesus, who he is, what he does, and you're exploring, you're investigating, we're really glad that you're here. But during this time, we're going to ask you to remain in your seat and to pray, think about what you're hearing, 
and go talk to somebody after the service. I'll be down front. I'm happy to talk. Or maybe there's someone in the room that you can continue conversations about what you're thinking and what your questions are. But in this time, this is for folks that have realized their need and they've gone to Christ for forgiveness and new life. While we're doing this up here, I'll be in the back with a couple other folks that are available to pray for you. And so you can come back there for prayer or if you have a question, um, you can come back there and pray for me. I need prayer as well. So let's pray. Lord, when we, when we take this communion that, that you instituted, you ordained this for the church to do, we are, we, we're, we're declaring to you and to ourselves that we need Dr. Jesus. That we had an infinite debt that we owed and could have never paid it off except that you did it for us. And so we're so grateful that you were willing to pay the price needed to produce the cure so that we could be forgiven. And we celebrate that today. We remember that today. We sing praises in honor of you because of it uh, today. And we ask for sustaining grace to, to maintain the following that you're asking us to do, Lord taking one step after another after another. I know there's some in the room that feel like they cannot take another step. And in their own strength, they're absolutely right. So would you come and minister to them your grace and encourage them and strengthen them to take another step, to follow you, take up their cross daily and never look back. We pray your blessing over the cup, over the bread, over our time together as we commune with you and one another here in this house of sinners saved by grace. Let me pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.